Luke chapter 20 and verse 41 and 42. Small little paragraph here that we're going to be looking at this morning. Very important passage, as you will see, as you will hear as we get into this passage. Luke chapter 20, verse 41 through, 45, through 44. But he said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself, in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful to be in your house. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this week. We thank you, Lord, that you have been so good to us, Lord. And we just want to give you praise and honor. Lord, you deserve all the glory and all the praise. Lord, we thank you that um, we come here this morning, uh, an opportunity to to sing and to pray together and to, to give offerings, Lord, that you use us in your kingdom. You didn't have to do that, but you chose to use us. You, you chose to use every dime and penny that we give or for your kingdom to glorify yourself. We praise you for that. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we come here this morning also to hear from your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us all, speak to our hearts. Encourage us and challenge us, Lord. Uh, use us, Lord, in the world to, make, to draw people to your son, Jesus. Use us this week, Lord to proclaim your truth, to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners. And Lord, and give us opportunities to proclaim that to people who have never heard. Give us opportunities this week, Lord, to disciple people who are believers, but who need to be encouraged and challenged by your word. We thank you for our church, Lord. We thank you for the ministries that we're involved in, the networks that we're involved in. We pray, Lord, for Storyline Church in St. Louis and Josh Wilson, Lord, and their church plant that just started last week, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would grow that church. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help them be a church and to be a light to those communities around St. Louis, Lord, that the gospel would go forth and that people would be unified not only in the church but also unified with you. Lord, we pray for those who are not with us. We pray for Eddie. We pray for his knee. We pray for Adam. We pray for others who are sick. We pray for others that are away. We pray, Lord, that you would bring them back to us safely. We pray for all our, our soon-to-be moms, Lord, who are, who are carrying babies, Lord. We praise you for that as well. And we pray, Lord, that you would keep them safe and the babies safe as well. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And again, we thank you for everything that you've done and will do through us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I'm going to, uh, the, the title of this sermon, if you've, is a Latin term. Uh, which is a term used in kind of talking about animals, and it talks about a species of animals that are unique, that are one of a kind. And this is the Latin term used to describe those species. It's a species that is one of a kind. It's unique. And so I want to talk about the uniqueness of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ. And I'm going to read this poem. I know that Robert doesn't particularly like long quotes, but I'm going to read one. So I apologize to him before I start, but I think it's worth reading. This is, poem is entitled The Real Jesus by James Allen Francis. He says, He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in a still another village where he worked until he was 30. Then for three years, he was a preacher. He never worked, wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. 
He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He did, not, he did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when public opinion turned against him. His friends, friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to the cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 19th century, 19th 19 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of, a, of the human race, the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. That poem, again, is called The Real Jesus, James Allen Francis. When we talk about the uniqueness of Christ, I'm going to get into some theology and doctrine. Uh, bear with me here in the beginning here, but I think it's important to hear this story. The story of the, of the study of Christ, as we would call Christology, right? That's the theo theological term. And there's a story to the understanding of Christ ever since Christ came on earth, died, and then rose again and ascended into heaven. Throughout time, since then to now, people have tried to understand Jesus. There's a story to it. The, for most of history since Jesus walked on earth, up until probably the 17th century, most people understood Jesus by the revealed word of God. If people said, tell me about Jesus, they would go, read about it in the Bible. Go to the New Testament. That will tell you about Jesus. And we call that the Jesus of the Bible, right? And for a long time, since Jesus walked on earth and then died and rose again and ascended to heaven, that's how people understood Jesus. But then, in the Enlightenment age, we call this the rational method. This was uh, the age of reason. The man who is the founder of this age is is a Frenchman named Descartes. And he said famously, I think, therefore I am. And when he said that, and by his thinking and by his philosophy, he, brought, he kind of brought in the age of reason or the enlightenment age, where human reason and experience is the foundation to knowledge, not the Bible. We call this the modern age, the scientific age. Therefore, Jesus had to fit the worldview of that age. You couldn't say, well, tell me about Jesus. People wouldn't say, go to the Bible. They would say, well, you could go to the Bible, but that's not really scientific. And, I, you know, I think it needs a little more critical analysis. So, Revelation was rejected as unscientific, unreliable, and uncredible, which brought into the world deism. As you know, a lot of our founding fathers were deists. What is deism? Deism is that God is not imminent. God is not fully personal. God is not sovereign over the human affairs. He is not providential. The world is actually a closed system. Therefore, there's no such thing as miracles. There's no such thing as the supernatural. Humans are basically good. And the Bible's main purpose is to be to order moral behavior. That's the purpose of the Bible. 
And this was a byproduct of the age of reason. Humans can reason for themselves what is true and what is right. We don't really need supernatural. We don't need revelation. Why? Because we can't actually say it's credible because it's not scientific. Therefore, it's not credible. So therefore, Jesus was despiritualized or desupernaturalized is probably the better term. And the Bible became unreliable to discover the real Jesus. It's unscientific for a man to turn water into wine. It's unscientific. We can't trust that that actually happened. It's not, it's not scientific. It's unscientific for a man to be raised from the dead. You can't trust that. It's not, it's not credible. Therefore, we cut that stuff out of the Bible. So we say, well, what is the real Jesus? You then X out all the miracles, all the supernatural, and you're trying to find the historical Jesus, the Jesus of history, not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus of history was just a mere man approved by God for a special role in history. Jesus is a myth that simply provides a moral example for humans. For most of this, this kind of um, this, this experiment or this, uh, this uh, project, which was called the Jesus Seminar, you realize that 80% of the Jesus Seminar, the, the historical Jesus, they did not use the four Gospels that you have in your Bible. They used the Gospel of Thomas. 80% came from the Gospel of Thomas, which, which is a, a, a basically a story about Jesus that came hundreds and hundreds of years after Christ and after the New Testament writers which said that Jesus was simply a preacher, a political leader in the spirit of Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., and he was unsupernaturalized. The real Jesus is not the Jesus of the New Testament. It is the Jesus who is pretty much more like Gandhi than he was God. Robert Funk, who is the architect of the Jesus Seminars, which was written and studied in 1985 to 1991. This is what he says. This is a quote from him. It is no longer credible to think of Jesus as divine. Jesus' divinity goes together with the old theistic way of thinking about God. We can't trust the Bible. We can't tr the Bible is unsci it's unscientific. It's unreliable. Well, the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield said, it is the desupernaturalized Jesus, which is the mythical, mythical Jesus, who never had any existence. The existence of whom explains nothing and leaves the whole historical development hanging in the air. So you had that age, which produced nothing. And so when people say, well, tell me about, tell me about Jesus, they provided very little that was actually real. And as Warfield says that, actually, that's the made-up Jesus, the Jesus of the scientific age. Well, then became the postmodern age. We are in the postmodern age. If you have never heard that term, welcome to the postmodern age. What does that mean? Postmodernism rejects the modern assumption of an objective or correct set of mental categories. In the area of Christ, there is no one objective understanding of Jesus. So, therefore, there's no reason to come up with an historical Jesus because that is saying that there's one view or one truth about Jesus. There could be multiple Jesuses. Everyone has their own view of Jesus, and that's all fair and good in the postmodern world. The universal understanding is not reasonable. The, the, the trying to find one definitive definition of anything, especially Jesus, is unreasonable. Now the individual is subject's term, subject determines meaning. Kevin Van Hooser concludes, 
They deny the notion of universal rationality. Reason is rather a contextual and relative affair, which counts as rational is relative to the prevailing narrative in a society or institution. If you're like, what are you talking about, Matt? Let me give you a perfectly good relevant example. Gender is a relative term in our age, right? That is by postmodern worldview. There is no one definition of anything. When people say, well, there's one definition of sex, and people go, no, there's not, it's because you're living in a postmodern age, and there is no universal definition for anything. It's all, it's all based off what you want it to be. It's all subjective. It's all based off context. So when it comes to Jesus, Jesus has to accommodate all the views of Christ as individual stories, all relevant, all correct. So you can have a version of Jesus that he is a liberator of your people group or your society or your community. That he's a liberator for you. Therefore, you get views like Jesus was gay or Jesus was, a, was black, or Jesus was this, or Jesus was that. Jesus was transgender because he is our liberator. That is the postmodern Jesus. The postmodern Jesus is what kind of Christology would be necessary or what kind of changes would have to be introduced into traditional Christology in order to fit the given of that pluralism. Therefore, Jesus has to fit the most postmodern worldview. So you say, well, tell me about Jesus. You're like, well, which Jesus do you want me to give you? The liberator Jesus, the gay Jesus, the transgender Jesus, the Hispanic Jesus, the black Jesus, the Indian Jesus. Every group can make up their own story. It doesn't really matter. What they believe and what they think is fine and good. Therefore, there is no discussion about who the real Jesus is. And let me give you another example Jesus Calling by Sarah Young, which is what one of the more popular Christian literature, if you want to use the word Christian. If you want to, if you really want to see how profound, how profound and how influential this book is, go to your local Christian bookstore and see what the first book you see. And many different variations. It's Sarah Young's Jesus Calling. And what she's doing is, is her book is a postmodern Christology. This is Jesus in Sarah Young's words. She hears from Jesus and then brings his message to her readers. Jesus in Sarah Young's words. The Bible is insufficient. The Bible is unreliable. The Bible is uncredible. So I will give you my version of Jesus. It's interesting that Jesus sounds very much like a 21st century Western middle-aged woman. Is that really Jesus? You're making it out to seem like he's more like a 21st century woman. This is what Sarah Young writes. I began to wonder if I could receive messages during my times of communion with God. I had been writing in prayer and journals for years, but that was one-way communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. Jesus is speaking to me. God is speaking to me individually, and I'm going to give you my individual view. The question of who is the real Jesus, well, you can have the Sarah Young Jesus. You can have whatever Jesus you want. That's the postmodern Jesus. Jesus becomes what you want and need, not what he actually is. People, institutions are not comfortable with the Jesus of Scripture, so they limit him. 
They call him a mere man, a, simply a son of David, and nothing more, nothing unique. So here's the main idea. Jesus is the most unique person in history because he is the eternal Lord who was exalted in his incarnation and will reign over all, either in faith or in judgment. Jesus is more than the son of David. This is point number one. Jesus is more than the son of David. He is the Lord God who reigns whose reign was established from eternity, initiated in his incarnation, will be fully realized when all are united in him, either through faith or judged by him. Point number one here, point A, what good to sinful humanity is a political liberator? What good to sinful humanity is a political liberator? Going back to the passage here. Jesus has just, I mean, he's had all these debates and conversations with religious leaders. He talked to the Pharisees. He's talked to the Sadducees. He's had these debates. They stopped talking, right? They're, they're not, they're all, as we saw at the end of last week's passage, that some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any more questions. They continued to be humiliated by Christ, so they just gave up. They gave up. So Jesus then responded, responds to their kind of laying down their arms to then provoke a question to them. And he says to them, scribes, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really sure who the them is. It could be the scribes, right? They mentioned to Jesus, teacher, you've spoken well, and then they dared not to ask him another question. Maybe he was speaking to them, or he was speaking to the religious community, or he was teaching to the people at large. It's unclear who Jesus is addressing here. And so he, he asked this question and to the, the group of people that he's speaking to. It makes sense that he's either talking to the religious leaders or he's talking to the people at large. And he says, how do they say that Christ is the son of David? There's a, there's some, there's kind of, they had some assumptions about Christ or the Messiah. And they knew that the Messiah was going to come, that God was going to send him. They knew that he was going to be a person. They knew it was not going to be an angel or some spirit or some phantom or some other variation of, that it was going to be a human. That was their expectation. They also knew or believed that, that the Messiah, the Christ, would be descendant from David, the great, one of the greatest kings, if not the greatest kings in Israel's history. David, if you know much, remember much about David, yes, he, he slayed the giant Goliath, but he also did more than just that. He conquered Jerusalem. The city of God, the, the city that, that the temple was in, was conquered by David. David conquered it. David also vanquished the, the Philistines. David accomplished a lot in his reign. And so people look at David's reign and Solomon's reign as kind of the golden age of Israel's history. So they look very fondly upon David and see him as a hero of Israel. And so they believe that the Messiah would come and he would be a descendant from David. Kind of thinking about, you know, when we talk about uh, presidents, every time we get near pre uh, presidential elections, everyone puts a lot of like hope, right? Whatever, whatever side you're voting on, oh, this guy will do all these things or that guy will do all these things. You know, what they thought about the Messiah, he was going to be the George Washington of Israel, right? This, this guy was going to, this going to be this great leader, very, like, very similar to the one we had in the past, like David. This great liberator. 
He was going to set all things right. He was going to bring peace to Israel. They would have their land back again. They would have their society back in the like, very similar like to the golden age. That the coming Messiah, the Christ, would be like King David. They, they kind of knew this just by reading uh, some of the promises of God. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you have a Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's a very important passage of the Bible. Verse 11. For the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of the kingdom forever. Forever. But they read that and go, oh, that sounds great. So an offspring of David... He's going to come. He's going to establish the kingdom again, and it will last forever. Amos 9.11 says that God was going to raise up the booth of David, that this great leader, this great liberator for Israel, that God was going to send, was going to be an offspring of David. He would be a son of David. He would be like David. This was the view of the Messiah. The Christ was limited. It's an important word, limited to a political liberator like David, that he would have military and political success. He would restore the material blessings from the golden age. For, so for a lot of Israel, especially the religious leaders, their, mythology, their, their methodology when it, coming to, when it comes to their idea of who Jesus or who Christ was going to be, who Messiah was going to be, was going to be a liberator, a political liberator. That Christ had to fit that perceived pattern he had to fit that pattern. He could be no more. He could be no more. He was definitely going to be less. But he could be no more than a, than a king or a leader like David. So I don't think any of the religious leaders had any issues with Jesus' heritage. I don't think they had any issues that Jesus came from the son of Joseph. I don't think that they were going, they were going to kill him with stones because he was born in Bethlehem and that he grew up in Nazareth and that his father was a carpenter. I don't think they had any problems with that, right? I don't think they had any problems that he came from the tribe of Judah, that he, became, that he was a descendant of the family of David. I don't think that they wanted to stone him to death because he was a son of David. I don't even think that they really honestly wanted to kill him because that people wanted to make him a king. We study in John chapter 6, verse 15, that they wanted to make him king. And what did he do? He left. That's not how Christ was going to gain his kingship. I don't think they typically had an issue with that Jesus could have been a political liberator like King David or Solomon to kick out the Romans. I don't think they would have had a problem with that either. I don't think they would have had a problem with Jesus being a great prophet of old. What did that Jesus say? Who do, who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're like John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. I don't think they had any issue with him being a great teacher. They were astonished at his Sermon on the Mount, right? They were astonished at his teaching with authority. I don't think they had any problem with him being a great teacher. I don't think they had a problem with him being a work, miracle worker. I don't think they care that he healed people. I don't think that, I mean, when he healed on the Sabbath, they had a problem with that. But I don't think they wanted to kill him because he healed the lepers or he gave sight to the blind. 
They didn't have a problem with that. The world has no issue with a remarkable Jesus, a remarkable teacher, a remarkable revolutionary, a remarkable healer, a remarkable philosopher, a remarkable moral example. I don't think the world cares, cares much about that. I don't think you're going to see people try to kill worshipers of Christ because they think he's a good teacher. It's his uniqueness that's the problem. His uniqueness is the problem. It's the, land in the line in the sand that said, uh-uh, that's too far. That's too far of a line. I'm okay with Jesus being over here, but I'm okay with Christ being over here, but you have gone way too far. There's a second point. A song of triumph written by God to the world. A song of triumph written by God to the world. So Jesus continues here in Luke chapter 20. He says, for David himself says to the book of Psalms. So Jesus brings up this question, how can they say that the Christ is David's son, right? How can they say that, it, that the Messiah was going to be a descendant from David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. These are King David's words. These, these are from Psalms 110, verse 1. These are the words of King David, the one who killed the giant Goliath with a stone, writes a conversation that God has with David's Lord. Remember, he says, my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. God is speaking to King David's Lord. And this entire psalm, Psalm 110, is a divine, mon, mon, uh, divine conversation spoken through King David. God is having a conversation with David's Lord. Who's David's Lord? David is the king of Israel. Who could possibly have authority over David? God is speaking to a superior of King David. Jesus is saying that the Christ is more than simply a son of David. David was promised an eternal kingdom. The one of his offspring would reign forever. I read the 2 Samuel passage. This, this fact that the Messiah would be a son of David is then confirmed by Paul, by John. Romans 1, chapter 3, chapter 1, verse 3. Revelation 22, verse 16. No one has a problem with him being a descendant of King David. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, liberal theologians. But who cares? Who cares if Jesus is simply a son of David? Who cares? That's awesome. Great. He's from David. Cool. Well, who cares? He is not limited to that. He is one of a kind. He is unique. Being the son of David does not make him unique. He's one of a kind. He's greater than King David. He is David's God. The Lord to my Lord. Who's more superior to David? God. He is God. This is one of those moments, if you are kind of, if you kind of like mafia movies, you like Italians, this is an oh moment. Oh, whoa, 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 he can't be, he'd be God. Whoa, 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 he can't be God, right? 
What happened when Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, 58 through 59, before Abraham was, I am, he says? What did they do? They grabbed stones to try to kill him. That was the line that he wrote in the sand, drew in the sand, and they said, that is way too far. The Messiah is David's Messiah and David's Lord. He is the eternal Lord. Colossians chapter 1. I feel like we read this passage like every week. Colossians chapter 1, 15 and 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is the eternal Lord. That is the one speaking in this passage. I am more than simply a descendant of David. This is a triumphal song by God. He says that my, I am, he's talking, God is talking to his son, the eternal son, and says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What is being described here is the journey of the Messiah, that Christ Jesus, the eternal son of God, was going to come into the world. He's going to take on flesh. He was going to initiate his rule on earth. He even says in passes later in 110 verse 2 of Psalms, from, he's sending him from Zion in the midst of your enemies. He was born to Mary and Joseph of Nazareth. He was a man hated by many, hated so much, he was handed over by his own people, his own people, to the enemy of the Jews, the Romans, to suffer with unbelievable agony. He was handed over. This was the journey of the Christ, the journey of the Messiah, the journey of the Lord of David to initiate his rule on earth. He came in the, in the likeness of men. He came, he suffered, and he died. God's wrath and judgment on human sin was poured on Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews right before James. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Great. Um, oh, one more. He is the radiant of, radiancy of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the journey of the Messiah, the Son of God, the eternal Lord, the Lord of David, who's not just simply the Son of David or be like David. He is the eternal God who came into the, into the world, who is the exact imprint of God and made purification for sin and then sat at the right hand of God Almighty. And we talk about the true enemies of God. We think, we kind of distance ourselves from a lot of these passages, right? Oh, yeah, 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 his enemies, the enemies of God. Oh, yeah, yeah, those are like murderers and like dictators, like people like the Romans. Like those are the, the enemies of God. If, you're, if you have proper theology, you know what the, who the enemies of God, don't you? The enemies of God are sitting right in front of you right now. We are all enemies of God, me and you 
where all of us have rebelled against God is our sinful nature. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And what does Paul say in Romans chapter 5? While we were still enemies of God, while we were sinners, we were, Christ died for us and he saved us. Christ comes in the midst of his enemies and he conquers through his blood and through his death. And then Christ is exalted. He conquered sin and death. He rose from the dead and he's exalted above all. He is undefeated. He conquers and he will rule over all. But the question is, is, is he your savior or is he your judge? By faith, by faith, you're united with Christ and his rule. By judgment, you are judged by a holy God. You are judged by this same Christ because you refuse to trust and put your faith in him. This is the reason many want to minimize Jesus, to limit him, to identify him as just a mere man, no more than a son of a once great king, a mere teacher, a mere revolutionary, a mere man. If he is God, then I am faced with a choice, submit to him or reject him. I must face the music. I will either be united with him in victory through faith or judged by him due to my refusal to believe. Those are your only choices. He is the ruler. He is the Lord of lords. He is the name above all names. You don't have a choice. There is no second path. There isn't a path to go, yeah, 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 but he's a mere teacher. He's a good guy. He's a son of David. Like, he's a good dude. I, I don't think he should have been crucified. I don't think he's all that bad. I just don't think he's God. There's not a category for that. He's either your savior or he is your judge. This is the last point. I am more than a son of a great king, a prophet, a prophet, a teacher, or religious leader. I'm more than a son of a great king, a philosopher, a teacher, or a religious leader. He says, how can I simply be David's son? How can I simply be a moral teacher when I am actually God? What is the implications of all this? That he is your creator. You need liberation from yourself. You are the problem in the universe. Have you ever contemplated that for a second? It's not the Taliban. It's not Al-Qaeda. It's not whoever else, the Democrats or the Republicans. They're not the problem in the universe. I loathe going to Panera Bread and listening to the, the old men in the corner talk about how bad the world is. You said, you know, the problem with America, you hear that constantly, the problem with America, you feel like you can basically create a 365-day calendar with different phrases of which problem, the problem with America, just fill in the blank. And the problem with these men is that they're looking at the problem. They're looking at the problem in front of them in the face. They are the problem. We are all the problems in the universe. Why? Because we are sinners. And what do sinners do? They do bad things. We are the problem. I am the problem in the universe. We need liberation from ourselves, not the Romans, not the religious leaders. We need liberation from ourselves. And if, God, if Christ is the, the Lord, if it's this God's world, and he comes into his world and dies to make you and I right, if you choose to continue to run away from the only truth that matters, you will be judged by the King of Kings and your Lord. This is the implications that he is the creator, this is his world, that we are the problem. This is his 
world. He is a savior or he will be a judge. The question is, what will it be for you? Will he be a savior or will he be a judge? The issue with deism is that they're wrong all the way across the board, aren't they? God is imminent, obviously. He sent his son into the world. God is personal, obviously. He revealed his word to us. God is sovereign over human affairs. God is providential. This is not a closed system. It is very much an open system. That's why God sent Christ in the world and why he did miraculous things because it's Christ's world and he conquered death. The humans are actually not basically good. We're actually basically sinful. And that the Bible is far more than just a order of moral behavior. It is the revealed word of God. Christ revealed in the Bible proves that God is very imminent, personal, sovereign, and providential. That human nature is not basically good, but sinful. The Bible is more than moral lessons, but a story of God's radical and awesome redemption of his enemies through his unique, eternal son, Jesus, who is more than a mere son of David. He is far more than a political liberator. He is far more than a moral teacher. He is far more than a moral example. He is the son of God. So what is the applications of this? That there's hope in the eternal Lord. That our Lord, Savior, and King is the master of history and the master of our future. He is very much in control, and we can rest in his sovereignty. The Lord says to my Lord, Christ, our Savior and Lord, is in control. He is sitting on the throne, and we do not have to be concerned or worry about our future because it is in his hands. Number two is faith in the shepherd king. My Lord sits at the right hand of God. Yet, this is where the Catholics get it wrong. This is where the Catholics and the Orthodox get it wrong, Orthodox Greeks get it wrong. They think Jesus is not a shepherd king. He is very much a shepherd king who says, I am gentle and lowly at heart. I am approachable. I am loving. I am kind. And I know my sheep. And I am willing to die for my sheep. Talk to me. I am your great high priest. I am one who hears and knows my sheep. Number three, everything must be rooted in Scripture. The problem with the age of reason and the postmodern age is that they have taken everything and unrooted it from Scripture. Everything. If you want to know who Jesus is, you have to go to the Bible. If you want an understanding of Christ or Christology that is right and real and good and truthful and factual, you must go to the Bible. And how do you know this? How do you know the Jesus that you trust and believe in is real and true and credible and reliable? Because it's from God's word. The authority of God has revealed to us who Jesus is. We don't have to wonder who he is. We know who he is because it's in his word. And last, if you want to have a biblical understanding, this is extremely important that everything about you and everything that you know and everything you believe to be true is rooted in Scripture. Number one, that God is personal and He is transcendent. The God of the Bible is the God that is in control. That our nature, who we truly are, is revealed in Scripture. 
that we are sinful, that we are, are from birth separated from God, that we, we've rebelled against God, that is what's wrong with the world. If you say, well, what's wrong with the world? Sin is what's wrong with the world. And the implications of that is that without salvation through God, we are hopeless. But God, as he reveals in his word, has sent Jesus, the unique Son of God, into the world. And if we have faith and trust in him, we are saved. And if we do not put our faith in him, we are judged from a holy God. A life that is not rooted in Scripture will lead to judgment. In Scripture, our Savior is revealed to us. A Savior who is more than a son of a once great king. A Savior who created the sun, moon, stars, who set the foundations of the world, who also took on flesh and died on a Roman cross to redeem you and me of our sins and then conquered the grave and reigned at the right hand of God and who will rule over all. The Bible tells us that. History or the, the study of history does not bring us that. The Bible reveals that. And those who are united with him in faith are unified in his rule. Through faith in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, revealed to us in the Gospels, is how we are unified in that rule, in that victory, in that triumph. But those who do not put their faith in the unique Son of God and Jesus Christ will be judged by him. Christ is going to rule over all. You either united him in his rule, or you will be judged by his rule. What is your response to David's Lord? Faith in him or judgment by him? Those are your choices. Either he is Lord, or he's just a mere man. Or he's just a mere teacher. Or he's just a mere moral example. Or he's just a mere son of a once great king. If that is your view, you will be judged by the unique son of God, Jesus Christ, the Lord of David. He will judge you. It will be swift. It will be horrible. And those who trust and put their faith in him will be united in his triumph and in his rule. Those are your two choices. That's the only choice that matters. Let's pray.